0: Welcome to Come Follow Me With Free, Episode 73, Pitfalls. Hello, everyone. This week has a lot of stuff, as usual. I feel like this Old Testament stuff, the Old Testament is just so big that they pack a lot of stories into, into each week. And so for this week, we have two huge, giant stories. We have the story of Noah's Ark, and we have the story of the Tower of Babel. And actually, I tried to look up exactly how to pronounce it because I've heard it both ways of Tower of Babel and Tower of Babel. And apparently the British English pronunciation is Tower of Babel and the American pronunciation is Tower of Babel babble. <laughs> so, I don't know why we decided to say it differently. It seems like a word we probably could both agree on. Um, I'm going to say tower of Babel because I feel like that's what comes most natu- naturally to me. And also it's kind of a fun play on words because eventually their language was confounded and we all know what babbling means. It means incoherent speech. So I'm going to call it the tower of Babel. So what we are going to focus on is the pitfalls of the people of that time And that they are literally the exact same pitfalls that we deal with now. Now, I'm going to encourage you to read this in detail, but I'm going to give you a brief summary of both. So Noah was called to preach the gospel to the people. And we saw this last week in Enoch's vision, warning them that they would be destroyed if they didn't repent. And guess how long he preached? I guess in my mind, I always imagined he preached for like five years or something and built the ark and then it happened. He preached for 120 years. That's a good reminder that sometimes in the scriptures, when it says soon, it means something different than what soon might mean in our minds. Imagine preaching for 120 years and how silly you could choose to feel. As the years roll by and nothing happens, how you could start to doubt yourself, like, maybe this isn't really true. Maybe I'm crazy. Maybe I'm hallucinating. Do you think that maybe the early pioneers thought that? Because we know that they thought during the time of Joseph Smith, they thought that the second coming was soon. When really soon doesn't necessarily mean right then during their time, and even now, I think a lot of us think that the second coming isn't all that far off relative to time in general, but we we just don't know because the term soon can mean a lot of different things for the Lord. it could mean it could mean soon, like soon the way we think of soon, but soon could be in fifty years or a hundred years, so it's just interesting to to think about how long of a time that is when the Lord said he was going to destroy the people and that Noah needed to tell them to repent. And there still was 120 years before that flood actually came. So something cool that I learned that I didn't know before, Noah is the angel Gabriel, the same Gabriel that told Mary that she was going to give birth to the Savior. Isn't that so cool? I Maybe all of you knew that. I don't know how I didn't know that, but I didn't. Anyhow, so the people mock him and try to kill him, and he builds an ark according to the measurements that the Lord has given him, and the Lord commands the animals to go to Noah, and they enter the ark, and Noah enters the ark with his wife and his three sons and their wives, and the great flood overtakes the earth. So my question always when I read this story, I'm just so excited, again, to find something that I just don't understand because I know eventually we will understand. But in my mind, I'm like, how, I mean, I know it was a big boat, but how did all of the animals fit on there? Was was this literal? Did Heavenly Father, like I was imagining like the Harry Potter tent, you know, the one where you, uh, they're going to the Quidditch World Cup and they go, you go in the tent and it's just way bigger inside than it appears from the outside. So like, is there some sort of like Heavenly Father magic going on inside that arc that made them all fit? I don't know. Somehow it worked, uh, but it's always just interesting to think about. So the great flood overtakes the earth. Now, it seems as though this flood doesn't happen in just the normal way that we think of floods happening. It says that the windows of heaven were opened and the great deep was broken up. John Taylor said, I would like to know by what known law the immersion of the globe could be accomplished. It is explained here in a few words. The windows of heaven were opened. That is, the waters that exist throughout the space surrounding the earth, from whence came these clouds when the rain descends. That was one cause. Another cause was the foundations of the great deep were broken up. That is something beyond the ocean, something outside the seas. Some reservoirs, of which we have no knowledge, were made to contribute to this event. And the waters were let loose by the hand and by the power of God. For God said he would bring a flood upon the earth and he brought it. But he had to let loose the fountains of the great deep and pour out the waters from there. And when the flood commenced to subside, we are told that the fountains also of the deep and the windows of heaven were stopped. And the rain from heaven was restrained and the waters returned from off the earth. Where did they go to from whence they came? Okay, so the world was effectively baptized. We know that that is the symbolic purpose of the flood is the earth itself was baptized it was cleansed from sin and we're kind of at this not kind of we're definitely at this exciting period in the history of the world where sometime in the relative to god near future the savior will come again and the earth will be baptized with fire so first baptized with water with the flood and then baptized with fire and it will receive its paradisaical glory so it makes sense that we would compare the the state of the world before the flood to the state of the world that we are in right now. And I think in both instances, we can have thoughts go through our mind of how could God do this, kill all of those people, children, children who were innocent. And I think we think the same thoughts when we read about what will happen previous to the second coming of Jesus Christ. All those people will be killed, children. Who are innocent, and I think that's kind of um, it's a short sighted part of who we are right now. We we this this life that we have right now is our whole world, and so the possibility of of death feels really painful and cruel. But in reality, this isn't the end. Those children that die in innocence will get to go live in the celestial kingdom because they didn't have that opportunity. And those sinners, the people who will be destroyed on the earth or were destroyed on the earth back then, won't have the opportunity to continue to sin, to continue to do things that hold them further accountable, that that lead them farther and farther away from God and closer to Satan. So in reality, it's an act of love. It's an act of, of mercy in destroying a generation so that they could no longer have children. It's it's an act of love for the future spirit children that needed to be sent down to the earth, that they weren't sent down to this horribly corrupt earth. And I think that often when I think about where our world is right now, I think eventually, I don't know exactly when we will get to that point, but eventually the Lord will not be willing to send down any more spirits to a world that is so wicked where they won't have a chance anymore. And that's when that destruction will come, is when the Lord feels that we are at that point. And of course, that also means that all the prophecy will have been fulfilled. But I'm pretty sure, actually, I know that both of those things will coincide. Okay, so to get back to the story of Noah, you know the basics of the rest of the story. The flood comes, everyone who is on the earth is killed except for Noah and his family. Noah sends out a dove a few times and eventually the dove bring, brings back an olive branch and Noah knows that that the earth is again dry and it's safe to come out. So, all right, I want to go on now to the Tower of Babel just to give you a brief summary before we talk about what I really want to get to. This happened some significant amount of time after the flood, but still within Noah's lifetime since we know that Noah lived another 349 years after the flood. The leader of the kingdom of Babel was Nimrod, and he was the grandson of Noah's son Ham, which that name makes me giggle, and actually also the name Nimrod. Both of them are funny names. (laughs) So it describes Nimrod as a mighty hunter, and he was definitely not known of as a good guy. And at the time of Nimrod and Noah, the earth spoke one language. And if you remember, we have an account of people that lived in the area of this kingdom, the Jaredites. We read in the Book of Mormon that Jared and Mahanrai moriankamer who is referred to as the brother of Jared in the Book of Mormon, asked the Lord to spare them and their families from what is to come. And the Lord does spare them. He doesn't confound their language. And he does some very unique things to help them cross the ocean to the promised land. So this people of Nimrod decide to build a tower to reach heaven. They wanted to show, and I don't know if they were like symbolically trying to get to heaven. I don't really know what they thought they could do, but they wanted to show that they didn't need God, that they didn't need a savior, that they could do it themselves. And maybe being a more primitive people, not having quite the understanding that we have now of of you know, what is above the clouds. I don't know if they just really thought that literally heaven was just right up there because as you can imagine, right up above the clouds would seem pretty unattainable. Like they don't know what's up above that cloud that they can't see. I don't know. I don't really know what they thought, but I've always thought it was kind of a funny story because I'm like, you thought you could get to heaven with a tower? But whatever the case, they, they wanted to show that they didn't need God and that they could do it themselves. The Lord comes down and he sees their wickedness And they are all united in this prideful effort. So he decides to confound their language so that they can't understand each other. And because of that, they are scattered and they stop building the city of the Tower of Babel. Okay, so we've got the story of Noah and the story of the people of the Tower of Babel. And I want to talk about just a few of the qualities of the wicked people in both of these stories. What were their hang-ups? What were their arguments? What do we see similar in our day? and perhaps even in ourselves. You know how sometimes you're assigned to give a talk and it happens to end up being the exact topic that you needed yourself to hear? Well, even though I kind of assigned myself this topic, or, or I guess really the spirit assigned me this topic, this message is something that I needed to hear. I have been so distracted, I feel like I'm kind of in a funk, but luckily I always know When it comes down to it, I always know exactly what I need to do, and I'll get to that part of it at the end. So I'm going to take some of these qualities of these wicked people as they come in chronological order, and I'm not going to cover every single one of them. I'm just going to cover a few. In Moses 8, which is the Joseph Smith translation of the first couple of verses in Genesis 6, it says in verse 14, and when these men, meaning the righteous sons of Noah, began to multiply on the face of the earth and the daughters were born unto them and the sons of men. When it says the sons of men in these verses, it means the wicked. If it means the righteous, it would say the sons of God. So these sons of men saw that those daughters were fair and they took them wives even as they chose. And the Lord said to Noah, the daughters of those sons have sold themselves. For behold, my anger is kindled against the sons of men, for they will not hearken unto my voice. So. In a nutshell, these daughters of these righteous sons of Noah marry outside of the church, which was not acceptable to the Lord. Joseph Fielding Smith said, Because the daughters of Noah married the sons of men, contrary to the teachings of the Lord, his anger was kindled, and this offense was one cause that brought to pass the universal flood. The daughters who had been born, evidently under the covenant, and were the daughters of the sons of God, that is to say, that those who held the priesthood were transgressing the commandment of the Lord and marrying outside the church. Thus, they were cutting themselves off from the blessings of the priesthood, contrary to the teachings of Noah and the will of God. Now, I know that this commandment is always important. We, the Lord wants us to get married in the temple and to be sealed and to be unified in that, in that purpose in serving the Lord and including Him in our marriages. Um, but I think especially I think of this phase of the world as kind of the building up the population of the earth phase. I can imagine that it was especially um, heartbreaking. I guess it's probably not really even any different when our children and the children of these people who are choosing to marry outside of the covenant are are having children and these children are then not born into the church of God. They're not born under the, the new and everlasting covenant. So the people of Noah are treating the sacred step in exaltation, which is entering into this sealing covenant, this this marriage covenant lightly. In the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we are not shy about the Lord's declaration that marrying in the temple is of utmost importance and is starting something that will propel us and qualify us into our eternal destiny and purpose. Fortunately, we have some knowledge about how that might look differently for people. We know that missionary work can be done for those who have passed on. We know that temple ordinances, including ceilings, can be done for couples who didn't have the opportunity to hear the gospel. We know that those righteous people who have done what they can, but either don't have the opportunity or have some other obstacle beyond their control to marry in this life will have that opportunity to have those blessings available to them in the next life. That being said, I think it's important to note that this is the first sin mentioned before the great flood, treating marriage lightly. And I think that that's a pretty good indicator that the Lord has strong feelings about marriage and its importance. Does our society treat marriage lightly? And obviously we can all answer that question for sure. It does. Does society pridefully believe that our wisdom and perspective exceeds God's on this subject? Of course, we also know that the answer to that is most certainly yes. Yes. The family proclamation says the first commandment that God gave Adam and Eve pertain to their potential for parenthood as husband and wife. We declare that God's commandment for his children to multiply and replenish the earth remains in force. We further declare that God has commanded that the sacred powers of procreation are to be employed only between man and woman, lawfully wedded as husband and wife. So as I'm thinking about this, I'm thinking, how does this apply to me? Because I am someone who has gotten married in the temple and I have a temple marriage. And I think sometimes I forget to apply these more serious sins to myself. Am I doing some sort of minor version or step toward that sin? And so on this topic, I think about, am I treating my marriage as sacred? Am I taking that responsibility seriously? Am I looking at my marriage as something that involves God? as something that has potential beyond this week or beyond the next 50 years? Am I thinking of it as a permanent fixture in my eternal destiny, in our eternal destiny? Am I thinking of my husband as somebody that I am one with, one in purpose, one in life, one in happiness and joy? Am I thinking of it with the gravity and weight that it deserves? Or am I treating it casually? Am I not putting in the effort and work necessary to keep it healthy, to keep it growing, to keep it moving toward that direction of exaltation? So I think that that's one way that we can really analyze if we're even dipping our toe in the direction that the people of Noah were headed. Okay, before we move on, just a little side note, remember that Noah's mission wasn't entirely unsuccessful. We know from Moses chapter 7 that some of the people that Noah preached to had a witness from the Holy Ghost, accepted the gospel, and were able to join the translated people in the city of Enoch. So that's pretty cool that we know that because if you just read the Genesis account, you would just think that nobody listened to Noah at all. And with 120 years of preaching, one, it just seems improbable that no one would listen to him ever, but man, that would be, that would be some extra rough stuff to preach for 120 years and no one listens to you. So we do know that some people listened and some people were converted. Next, we read that the wicked people Noah was preaching to wanted to kill him. Why might they want to do that? The scriptures give us so much insight into that for sure. Aside from the many examples we have of people trying to kill prophets who are preaching repentance to them, Nephi teaches us that wherefore the guilty taketh the truth to be hard for it cutteth them to the very center. People don't like to be told that they're being wicked. In Alma chapter 35, Alma notices that the people are getting more and more wicked and he says the people began to be offended because of the strictness of the word. There could be no truer statement than that today. How often do you hear people being offended by the strictness of the commandments, that it hurts their feelings or it makes them feel guilty, that it's not good for their mental health to apply the commandments to themselves, that Christianity is emotionally unhealthy and unrealistic? And to that, I wholeheartedly disagree. The gospel of Jesus Christ is love and peace, all of it even the parts that are hard for us to hear sometimes when they're hitting a particular nerve because we struggle with something, then enter Satan. So that would be my argument. Where it becomes emotionally unhealthy and unrealistic, that is where Satan has come in. That is where Satan has entered the equation and made it unhealthy and unrealistic. It's Satan that tricks us into thinking that our struggles are too much for the Savior. It's Satan who wants to heap shame on us. guilt is a healthy reaction to violating God's laws. But that righteous guilt remembers that the Savior already atoned for it all, that we can cast our burdens on the Lord and He doesn't want us to keep it. He wants our willing and humble hearts. And when we let Him take those burdens, He can make us whole again. He takes the guilt for that sin. It doesn't mean that He removes all of our trials and our temptations, but it means that He's there with you in them giving you strength to be better than you were yesterday. It means that he's there with you to forgive you again as you imperfectly move forward, giving it effort. But shame, shame is what Satan wants us to spiral into from that. Shame is held tightly. Shame is misery. Shame is secrecy. Shame does not motivate you to move forward. Shame does not pull you to the Lord. And that's because shame is from the adversary. Shame makes us angry and resentful, Shame leaves open wounds. Shame is toxic. And the result of that toxic shame is a spirit inside of you that is offended by the commandments of God. So in application to myself, I like to think of small things going on in my life that make me start to feel a little bit prickly. In what ways am I pushing back on feeling offended by the commandments of God? For me, that prickly feeling is when I'm starting to try to justify. If I feel the need to justify, then I can tell that I'm pushing back on God's commandments. Am I keeping the Sabbath day holy? Or am I just justifying on how I choose to use it? Do I use my time wisely? Or do I feel the need to justify all the reasons why I'm using it poorly and why it's out of my control? Am I being a good ministering sister? Or am I justifying all the reasons that I don't have time am I teaching my children the gospel or am I justifying not doing it by saying I'm too overwhelmed? Do you see the connection? Often I think that we think of rebelling against God's commandments as this extreme level of sin and rebellion, but it's important that we recognize the beginning stages of that. It doesn't happen all at once. Justification is the first step. Listen to Moses chapter 8, verse 21. And also, after they had heard him, they came up before him saying, Behold, we are the sons of God, meaning we are righteous. Have we not taken unto ourselves the daughters of men? And are we not eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage? And our wives bear unto us children? And the same are mighty men, which are like unto the men of old, men of great renown. And they hearken not unto the words of Noah. Basically, they're saying, look how successful and great our lives are. We don't really need the gospel. In verse 22, it says, and God saw the wickedness of men had become great in the earth. And every man was lifted up in the imagination of the thoughts of his heart being only evil continually. Their thoughts mattered to God. Something I like to do quite often is analyze what is taking up the bulk of my thoughts. Now, I don't use this as a tool to beat myself up for thinking about trivial things or worrying about things or having a stray thought that I know is not kind or good. I do repent for those things, but then I move on. But what I like to do is look at the whole picture. What is taking up most of my thought time? Am I thinking too much about decorating my house? If I am, that's a pretty good indicator to me that I need to readjust my priorities. Am I wasting too much mental energy arguing with people that I don't agree with in my head? also a pretty good indicator that my mind is too caught up in contention. What I want to see and what I hope to see when I self-analyze is that my mind is primarily focused on good and virtuous and pure things, things that Heavenly Father wants me to focus on. Our thoughts matter because our thoughts affect our spirit and then in turn affect our actions. Now, this topic of thoughts is one that I am particularly sensitive to. I have a daughter who has OCD, and her thoughts are a real struggle for her. Her brain gets stuck on certain thoughts. And so as I say these things, I think that there are varying degrees to which people are naturally able to control their own thoughts and control and let go of the guilt that comes along with those thoughts. So being able to be in the driver's seat of your own thoughts may come easy for you, Or it may be more difficult for you. And that's a challenge that I promise that I know the Lord can help you with. All right. The last thing I want to talk about is the primary sin that the people who built the Tower of Babel were committing. They were stating their independence from God. They could get into heaven without him. So I was thinking about how this applies so perfectly to our day. There is a lot of self-help talk out there right now. A lot of talk about emotional emotional health, emotional healing, um, about self-love, self-compassion. And that's great. But what I want to talk to you about is a message that I've talked about before. And it's the message of you are enough. And while I think that this is a well-intentioned mantra, I think of it as Incomplete. And some people might say I'm I'm picking apart that phrase too much, that I'm trying to get too specific with it. But I think I disagree. I think that if this is a mantra that we are telling ourselves as a society, and if you're telling that to yourself all the time, it's going to feel empty eventually because ultimately you aren't enough by yourself we all need the savior to reach our potential. We need the savior to live a truly fulfilled life. We need the savior to overcome our weaknesses. We need the savior to reach our potential. We need the savior in our relationships. We need the savior in every part of our life. And so if as a society or to ourselves, we are constantly saying you are enough and yet we're not, I think that ultimately will leave a huge gaping hole that we don't know how to fill if we haven't lived our life acknowledging that we need the Savior. Remember how I told you at the beginning I feel like I'm kind of in a funk? Well, anytime I feel like that and I ask the Lord to help me, I always, always, always get the same answer. And I know how to get through. The answer always is, put the Savior first and everything else will fall into place. The church Instagram page posted this today. Remember what matters most. There might be more than one right way to plan your future. Just keep Jesus Christ as the center of any plan. I truly believe that. As I take daily steps to put the Savior first, to make Him the center of any of my plans of any of my days, it will all fall into place. It doesn't mean that life will be perfect. It doesn't mean that your day will be perfect, but it does mean that we will get to live life with the Savior by our side, and we will get to feel that peace that only He can bring. He can fill that hole inside us that only He can fill. Self-evaluation is an important part of our progression. We have to do it. There is so much that we can pull out of these stories, and really all the stories in the scriptures, about the many different ways that we can lose our way. As you read these stories this week, thinking about the big ways or the small ways that you are acting like the the wicked people, don't let that overwhelm you. Focus on one thing at a time. Focus on the next right thing. My daughter Kennedy gave a talk this past Sunday, and she said, if you look ahead, there's a lot to go before we reach our destination. But instead of looking at what you have to be, look at the next step. Then, once you have taken that step, take another. God doesn't expect us to be perfect right away. And actually, He doesn't expect us to be perfect at all right now. He just wants us to make our best effort, and that will count for Him. Hi, welcome to come follow me. And I say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Hello, everyone. This week has a lot of stuff as usual. I feel like this Old Testament stuff, the Old Testament is just so big that they pack a lot of stories into, into each week. And so for this week, we have two huge giant stories. We have the story of Noah's Ark and we have the story of the Tower of Babel. And actually, I tried to look up exactly how to pronounce it because I've heard it both ways of Tower of Babel and Tower of Babel. And apparently the British English pronunciation is Tower of Babel and the American pronunciation is Tower of Babel. <laughs> so- I don't know why we decided to say it differently. It seems like a word we probably could both agree on. Um, I'm going to say Tower of Babel because I feel like that's what comes most natu- naturally to me. And also, it's kind of a fun play on words because eventually their language was confounded. And we all know what babbling means. It means incoherent speech. So I'm going to call it the Tower of Babel. So what we are going to focus on is the pitfalls of the people of that time And that they are literally the exact same pitfalls that we deal with now. Now, I'm going to encourage you to read this in detail, but I'm going to give you a brief summary of both. So Noah was called to preach the gospel to the people. And we saw this last week in Enoch's vision, warning them that they would be destroyed if they didn't repent. And guess how long he preached? I guess in my mind, I always imagined he preached for like five years or something and built the ark and then it happened. He preached for 120 years. That's a good reminder that sometimes in the scriptures, when it says soon, it means something different than what soon might mean in our minds. Imagine preaching for 120 years and how silly you could choose to feel. As the years roll by and nothing happens, how you could start to doubt yourself, like, maybe this isn't really true. Maybe I'm crazy. Maybe I'm hallucinating. Do you think that maybe the early pioneers thought that? Because we know that they thought during the time of Joseph Smith, they thought that the second coming was soon. When really soon doesn't necessarily mean right then during their time, and even now, I think a lot of us think that the second coming isn't all that far off relative to time in general. But we we just don't know because the term soon can mean a lot of different things for the Lord. It could mean it could mean soon, like soon the way we think of soon, but soon could be in fifty years or a hundred years. So it's just interesting to to think about how long of a time that is when the Lord said he was going to destroy the people and that Noah needed to tell them to repent. And there still was 120 years before that flood actually came. So something cool that I learned that I didn't know before, Noah is the angel Gabriel, the same Gabriel that told Mary that she was going to give birth to the Savior. Isn't that so cool? I Maybe all of you knew that. I don't know how I didn't know that, but I didn't anyhow so the people mock him and try to kill him and he builds an ark according to the measurements that the Lord has given him and the Lord commands the animals to go to Noah and they enter the ark and Noah enters the ark with his wife and his three sons and their wives and the great flood overtakes the earth so my question always when I read this story I just would I'm just so excited. Again, to find something that I just don't understand, because I know eventually we will understand. But in my mind, I'm like, how? I mean, I know it was a big boat, but how did all of the animals? Fit on there? Was, was this literal? Did Heavenly Father, like I was imagining like the Harry Potter tent, you know, the one where you uh, they're going to the Quidditch World Cup and they go, you go in the tent and it's just way bigger inside than it appears from the outside. So like, is there some sort of like Heavenly Father magic going on inside that arc that made them all fit? I don't know. Somehow it worked, uh, but it's always just interesting to think about. So the Great Flood overtakes the earth. Now, it seems as though this flood doesn't happen in just the normal way that we think of floods happening. It says that the windows of heaven were opened and the great deep was broken up. John Taylor said, I would like to know by what known law the immersion of the globe could be accomplished. It is explained here in a few words. The windows of heaven were opened. That is the waters that exist throughout the space surrounding the earth from whence came these clouds when the rain descends. That was one cause. Another cause was the foundations of the great deep were broken up. That is something beyond the ocean, something outside the seas. Some reservoirs of which we have no knowledge were made to contribute to this event, and the waters were let loose by the hand and by the power of God. For God said he would bring a flood upon the earth, and he brought it. But he had to let loose the fountains of the great deep and pour out the waters from there. And when the flood commenced to subside, We are told that the fountains also of the deep and the windows of heaven were stopped and the rain from heaven was restrained and the waters returned from off the earth. Where did they go to from whence they came? Okay, so the world was effectively baptized. We know that that is the symbolic purpose of the flood is the earth itself was baptized. It was cleansed from sin. And we're kind of at this not kind of, we're definitely at this exciting period in the history of the world where sometime in the relative to God near future, the Savior will come again and the earth will be baptized with fire. So first baptized with water with the flood and then baptized with fire and it will receive its paradisiacal glory. So it makes sense that we would compare the the state of the world before the flood to the state of the world that we are in right now. And I think in both instances, we can have thoughts go through our mind of how could God do this, kill all of those people, children, children who were innocent. And I think we think the same thoughts when we read about what will happen previous to the second coming of Jesus Christ, all those people will be killed, children who are innocent. And I think that's kind of, um, It's a short sighted part of who we are right now. We, we, this, this life that we have right now is our whole world. And so the possibility of, of death feels really painful and cruel. But in reality, this isn't the end. Those children that die in innocence will get to go live in the celestial kingdom because they didn't have that opportunity. And, those sinners, the people who will be destroyed on the earth or were destroyed on the earth back then, won't have the opportunity to continue to sin to continue to do things that hold them further accountable that that lead them farther and farther away from God and closer to Satan. so in reality, it's a an act of love, it's an act of of mercy in destroying a generation so that they, could no longer have children. It's it's an act of love for the future spirit children that needed to be sent down to the earth, that they weren't sent down to this horribly corrupt earth. And I think that often when I think about where our world is right now, I think eventually, I don't know exactly when we will get to that point, but eventually the Lord will not be willing to send down any more spirits to a world that is so wicked where they won't have a chance anymore. And that's when that destruction will come, is when the Lord feels that we are at that point. And of course, that also means that all the prophecy will have been fulfilled. But I'm pretty sure, actually, I know that both of those things will coincide. Okay, so to get back to the story of Noah, you know the basics of the rest of the story. The flood comes, everyone who is on the earth is killed except for Noah and his family. Noah sends out a dove a few times and eventually the dove bring, brings back an olive branch and Noah knows that that the earth is again dry and it's safe to come out. So, all right, I want to go on now to the Tower of Babel just to give you a brief summary before we talk about what I really want to get to. This happened some significant amount of time after the flood, but still within Noah's lifetime since we know that Noah lived another 349 years after the flood. The leader of the kingdom of Babel was Nimrod, and he was the grandson of Noah's son Ham, which that name makes me giggle, and actually also the name Nimrod, both of them are funny names. (laughs) So, it describes Nimrod as a mighty hunter, and he was definitely not known of as a good guy. And at the time of Nimrod and Noah, the earth spoke one language. And if you remember, we have an account of people that lived in the area of this kingdom, the Jaredites. We read in the Book of Mormon that Jared and Mahanrai moriankamer who is referred to as the brother of Jared in the Book of Mormon, asked the Lord to spare them and their families from what is to come. And the Lord does spare them. He doesn't confound their language. And he does some very unique things to help them cross the ocean to the promised land. So this people of Nimrod decide to build a tower to reach heaven. They wanted to show, and I don't know if they were like symbolically trying to get to heaven. I don't really know what they thought they could do, but they wanted to show that they didn't need God, that they didn't need a savior, that they could do it themselves. And maybe being a more primitive people, not having quite the understanding that we have now of of you know, what is above the clouds. I don't know if they just really thought that literally heaven was just right up there because as you can imagine, right up above the clouds would seem pretty unattainable. Like they don't know what's up above that cloud that they can't see. I don't know. I don't really know what they thought, but I've always thought it was kind of a funny story because I'm like, you thought you could get to heaven with a tower? But whatever the case, they, they wanted to show that they didn't need God and that they could do it themselves. The Lord comes down and he sees their wickedness And they are all united in this prideful effort. So he decides to confound their language so that they can't understand each other. And because of that, they are scattered and they stop building the city of the Tower of Babel. Okay, so we've got the story of Noah and the story of the people of the Tower of Babel. And I want to talk about just a few of the qualities of the wicked people in both of these stories. What were their hang-ups? What were their arguments? What do we see similar in our day? and perhaps even in ourselves. You know how sometimes you're assigned to give a talk and it happens to end up being the exact topic that you needed yourself to hear? Well, even though I kind of assigned myself this topic, or, or I guess really the spirit assigned me this topic, this message is something that I needed to hear. I have been so distracted, I feel like I'm kind of in a funk, but luckily I always know When it comes down to it, I always know exactly what I need to do, and I'll get to that part of it at the end. So I'm going to take some of these qualities of these wicked people as they come in chronological order, and I'm not going to cover every single one of them. I'm just going to cover a few. In Moses 8, which is the Joseph Smith translation of the first couple of verses in Genesis 6, it says in verse 14, and when these men, meaning the righteous sons of Noah, began to multiply on the face of the earth and the daughters were born unto them and the sons of men. When it says the sons of men in these verses, it means the wicked. If it means the righteous, it would say the sons of God. So these sons of men saw that those daughters were fair and they took them wives even as they chose. And the Lord said to Noah, the daughters of those sons have sold themselves. For behold, my anger is kindled against the sons of men, for they will not hearken unto my voice. So. In a nutshell, these daughters of these righteous sons of Noah marry outside of the church, which was not acceptable to the Lord. Joseph Fielding Smith said, Because the daughters of Noah married the sons of men, contrary to the teachings of the Lord, his anger was kindled, and this offense was one cause that brought to pass the universal flood. The daughters who had been born, evidently under the covenant, and were the daughters of the sons of God, that is to say, that those who held the priesthood were transgressing the commandment of the Lord and marrying outside the church. Thus, they were cutting themselves off from the blessings of the priesthood, contrary to the teachings of Noah and the will of God. Now, I know that this commandment is always important. We, the Lord wants us to get married in the temple and to be sealed and to be unified in that, in that purpose in serving the Lord and including Him in our marriages. Um, but I think especially I think of this phase of the world as kind of the building up the population of the earth phase. I can imagine that it was especially um, heartbreaking. I guess it's probably not really even any different when our children and the children of these people who are choosing to marry outside of the covenant are are having children and these children are then not born into the church of God. They're not born under the, the new and everlasting covenant. So the people of Noah are treating the sacred step in exaltation, which is entering into this sealing covenant, this this marriage covenant lightly. In the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we are not shy about the Lord's declaration that marrying in the temple is of utmost importance and is starting something that will propel us and qualify us into our eternal destiny and purpose. Fortunately, we have some knowledge about how that might look differently for people. We know that missionary work can be done for those who have passed on. We know that temple ordinances, including ceilings, can be done for couples who didn't have the opportunity to hear the gospel. We know that those righteous people who have done what they can, but either don't have the opportunity or have some other obstacle beyond their control to marry in this life will have that opportunity to have those blessings available to them in the next life. That being said, I think it's important to note that this is the first sin mentioned before the great flood, treating marriage lightly. And I think that that's a pretty good indicator that the Lord has strong feelings about marriage and its importance. Does our society treat marriage lightly? And obviously we can all answer that question for sure. It does. Does society pridefully believe that our wisdom and perspective exceeds God's on this subject? Of course, we also know that the answer to that is most certainly yes. Yes. The family proclamation says the first commandment that God gave Adam and Eve pertain to their potential for parenthood as husband and wife. We declare that God's commandment for his children to multiply and replenish the earth remains in force. We further declare that God has commanded that the sacred powers of procreation are to be employed only between man and woman, lawfully wedded as husband and wife. So as I'm thinking about this, I'm thinking, how does this apply to me? Because I am someone who has gotten married in the temple and I have a temple marriage. And I think sometimes I forget to apply these more serious sins to myself. Am I doing some sort of minor version or step toward that sin? And so on this topic, I think about, am I treating my marriage as sacred? Am I taking that responsibility seriously? Am I looking at my marriage as something that involves God, as something that has potential beyond this week or beyond the next 50 years? Am I thinking of it as a permanent fixture in my eternal destiny, in our eternal destiny? Am I thinking of my husband as somebody that I am one with, one in purpose, one in life, one in happiness and joy? Am I thinking of it with The gravity and weight that it deserves? Or am I treating it casually? Am I not putting in the effort and work necessary to keep it healthy, to keep it growing, to keep it moving toward that direction of exaltation? So I think that that's one way that we can really analyze if we're even dipping our toe in the direction that the people of Noah were headed. Okay, before we move on, just a little side note, remember that Noah's mission wasn't entirely unsuccessful. We know from Moses chapter 7 that some of the people that Noah preached to had a witness from the Holy Ghost, accepted the gospel, and were able to join the translated people in the city of Enoch. So that's pretty cool that we know that because if you just read the Genesis account, you would just think that nobody listened to Noah at all. And with 120 years of preaching, one, it just seems improbable that no one would listen to him ever, but man, that would be, that would be some extra rough stuff to preach for 120 years and no one listens to you. So we do know that some people listened and some people were converted. Next, we read that the wicked people Noah was preaching to wanted to kill him. Why might they want to do that? The scriptures give us so much insight into that for sure. Aside from the many examples we have of people trying to kill prophets who are preaching repentance to them, Nephi teaches us that, Wherefore the guilty taketh the truth to be hard, for it cutteth them to the very center. People don't like to be told that they're being wicked. In Alma chapter 35, Alma notices that the people are getting more and more wicked, and he says, The people began to be offended because of the strictness of the word. There could be no truer statement than that today. How often do you hear people being offended by the strictness of the commandments, that it hurts their feelings, or it makes them feel guilty, that it's not good for their mental health to apply the commandments to themselves, that Christianity is emotionally unhealthy and unrealistic. And to that, I wholeheartedly disagree. The gospel of Jesus Christ is love and peace, all of it even the parts that are hard for us to hear sometimes when they're hitting a particular nerve because we struggle with something, then enter Satan. So that would be my argument. Where it becomes emotionally unhealthy and unrealistic, that is where Satan has come in. That is where Satan has entered the equation and made it unhealthy and unrealistic. It's Satan that tricks us into thinking that our struggles are too much for the Savior. It's Satan who wants to heap shame on us. guilt is a healthy reaction to violating God's laws. But that righteous guilt remembers that the Savior already atoned for it all, that we can cast our burdens on the Lord and He doesn't want us to keep it. He wants our willing and humble hearts. And when we let Him take those burdens, He can make us whole again. He takes the guilt for that sin. It doesn't mean that He removes all of our trials and our temptations, but it means that He's there with you in them giving you strength to be better than you were yesterday. It means that he's there with you to forgive you again as you imperfectly move forward, giving it effort. But shame, shame is what Satan wants us to spiral into from that. Shame is held tightly. Shame is misery. Shame is secrecy. Shame does not motivate you to move forward. Shame does not pull you to the Lord. And that's because shame is from the adversary. Shame makes us angry and resentful, Shame leaves open wounds. Shame is toxic. And the result of that toxic shame is a spirit inside of you that is offended by the commandments of God. So in application to myself, I like to think of small things going on in my life that make me start to feel a little bit prickly. In what ways am I pushing back on feeling offended by the commandments of God? For me, that prickly feeling is when I'm starting to try to justify. If I feel the need to justify, then I can tell that I'm pushing back on God's commandments. Am I keeping the Sabbath day holy? Or am I just justifying on how I choose to use it? Do I use my time wisely? Or do I feel the need to justify all the reasons why I'm using it poorly and why it's out of my control? Am I being a good ministering sister? Or am I justifying all the reasons that I don't have time? Am I teaching my children the gospel or am I justifying not doing it by saying I'm too overwhelmed? Do you see the connection? Often I think that we think of rebelling against God's commandments as this extreme level of sin and rebellion, but it's important that we recognize the beginning stages of that. It doesn't happen all at once. Justification is the first step. Listen to Moses chapter 8, verse 21. And also, after they had heard him, they came up before him saying, Behold, we are the sons of God, meaning we are righteous. Have we not taken unto ourselves the daughters of men? And are we not eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage? And our wives bear unto us children? And the same are mighty men, which are like unto the men of old, men of great renown. And they hearken not unto the words of Noah. Basically, they're saying, look how successful and great our lives are. We don't really need the gospel. In verse 22, it says, and God saw the wickedness of men had become great in the earth. And every man was lifted up in the imagination of the thoughts of his heart being only evil continually. Their thoughts mattered to God. Something I like to do quite often is analyze what is taking up the bulk of my thoughts. Now, I don't use this as a tool to beat myself up for thinking about trivial things or worrying about things or having a stray thought that I know is not kind or good. I do repent for those things, but then I move on. But what I like to do is look at the whole picture. What is taking up most of my thought time? Am I thinking too much about decorating my house? If I am, that's a pretty good indicator to me that I need to readjust my priorities. Am I wasting too much mental energy arguing with people that I don't agree with in my head? also a pretty good indicator that my mind is too caught up in contention. What I want to see and what I hope to see when I self-analyze is that my mind is primarily focused on good and virtuous and pure things, things that Heavenly Father wants me to focus on. Our thoughts matter because our thoughts affect our spirit and then in turn affect our actions. Now, this topic of thoughts is one that I am particularly sensitive to. I have a daughter who has OCD, and her thoughts are a real struggle for her. Her brain gets stuck on certain thoughts. And so as I say these things, I think that there are varying degrees to which people are naturally able to control their own thoughts and control and let go of the guilt that comes along with those thoughts. So being able to be in the driver's seat of your own thoughts may come easy for you, Or it may be more difficult for you. And that's a challenge that I promise that I know the Lord can help you with. All right. The last thing I want to talk about is the primary sin that the people who built the Tower of Babel were committing. They were stating their independence from God. They could get into heaven without him. So I was thinking about how this applies so perfectly to our day. There is a lot of self-help talk out there right now. A lot of talk about emotional, emotional health, emotional healing, um, about self-love, self-compassion. And that's great. But what I want to talk to you about is a message that I've talked about before. And it's the message of you are enough. And while I think that this is a well-intentioned mantra, I think of it as incomplete. And some people might say I'm, I'm picking apart that phrase too much, that I'm trying to get too specific with it. But I think I disagree. I think that if this is a mantra that we are telling ourselves as a society and if you're telling that to yourself all the time, it's going to feel empty eventually because ultimately you aren't enough by yourself we all need the Savior to reach our potential. We need the Savior to live a truly fulfilled life. We need the Savior to overcome our weaknesses. We need the Savior to reach our potential. We need the Savior in our relationships. We need the Savior in every part of our life. And so if as a society or to ourselves, we are constantly saying, you are enough, and yet we're not, I think that ultimately will leave a huge gaping hole that we don't know how to fill if we haven't lived our life acknowledging that we need the Savior. Remember how I told you at the beginning I feel like I'm kind of in a funk? Well, anytime I feel like that and I ask the Lord to help me, I always, always, always get the same answer. And I know how to get through. The answer always is, put the Savior first and everything else will fall into place. The church Instagram page posted this today. Remember what matters most. There might be more than one right way to plan your future. Just keep Jesus Christ as the center of any plan. I truly believe that. As I take daily steps to put the Savior first, to make Him the center of any of my plans of any of my days, it will all fall into place. It doesn't mean that life will be perfect. It doesn't mean that your day will be perfect, but it does mean that we will get to live life with the Savior by our side, and we will get to feel that peace that only He can bring. He can fill that hole inside us that only He can fill. Self-evaluation is an important part of our progression. We have to do it. There is so much that we can pull out of these stories, and really all the stories in the scriptures, about the many different ways that we can lose our way. As you read these stories this week, thinking about the big ways or the small ways that you are acting like the the wicked people, don't let that overwhelm you. Focus on one thing at a time. Focus on the next right thing. My daughter Kennedy gave a talk this past Sunday, and she said, if you look ahead, there's a lot to go before we reach our destination. But instead of looking at what you have to be, look at the next step then once you have taken that step, take another. God doesn't expect us to be perfect right away. And actually, he doesn't expect us to be perfect at all right now. He just wants us to make our best effort, and that will count for him. And I say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.